This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So I'm guessing that you don't have to check your calendar on this because one year to today, we know the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a global pandemic. Tim, we've come a long way. We have come a long way. Uh, We've come a long way when it comes to vaccine. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, I think if you were to ask any of us one year ago today, if one year later, where we are now, more than 500,000 of our fellow Americans would be dead as a result of this pandemic, we'd have probably said no way. Yeah, exactly. Um, And listen, we're still uh, hearing stories about people not taking vaccines, not wanting to, even as we see the availability of such uh, are increasing. Listen, we had a bunch of our former presidents get together and really kind of collaboratively say, let's get the vaccine, check it out. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. All right, uh, former presidents and former first ladies. Yeah, that's right. Some familiar voices you heard. George W. Bush, Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, and of course, Bill Clinton. One name missing, though. Yeah. Former uh, President Trump. Exactly. He did not take part. But we do know he and the former first lady, uh, Melania, did get the vaccine. They did. They got it in secret, though, at the White House before they left. All right. So nonetheless, we're hearing a lot of people come out and say, let's get the vaccine. So let's get through uh, kind of where we've come, you know, what we've come through over the past year and where we are. Rupali LeMay, she is associate scientist for the Departments of International Health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. It is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. She's on the phone in Falls Church, Virginia. Rupali, thanks for um, letting us kind of put that out because that was kind of a big deal. You know, you are seeing lots of leaders and leadership come out and really encourage Americans to get the vaccine. And that's something you've been watching as well. That's right. Thanks so much for having me. And I think it's really important as people get the vaccine because it is a due product. And there tends to be, I think, maybe people might have more concerns because it is a new vaccine. So it's really important to get folks that people trust out there talking about their experiences and showing people that they're also getting the vaccine to show that they trust the process and the product. So the reason I brought up President Trump not taking part in this is because there's new research coming from the Pew Center that says that partisan differences are seen in vaccine intent. Democrats are now 27 percentage points more likely than Republicans to say they plan to get or have already received a coronavirus vaccine. I wonder from your perspective if if you think that it's a missed opportunity for the former president not to come out publicly. He did at CPAC. He said he told everyone at CPAC to get a shot. But not to participate in a video like this that, that, and, and, and not be public when he got the vaccine in secret at the White House back in January. You know, it's a great question. And I think if we track intentions since the beginning of last March from about a year ago today, 
we can see that there's always been a bit of a, a, a huge change, I would say, with regards to the proportion of Democrats that said that they would be willing to get a vaccine and, and Republicans. And as you just mentioned in the new Pew report, it's actually it's widened compared to what we have seen about a year wow. ago. And so I think anything we can do to really narrow that gap, right, is really important. Do I think that having a political leader um, that a lot of people, such as former President Trump, did vote for in 2016 and in this last election come out, would that make a difference? Yes, I, I do think it would. Um, I think even if it's not him, I think other Republican leaders, if they came out and really talked about the process of getting the vaccine and, you know, maybe questions that they may have had that they were then allayed after they talked to a healthcare provider or a vaccine scientist, I think it would go a, a long way, especially when you look at disparities by state. And you look at sort of political ideology by state, and we're starting to see some of those differences as well. And listen, we understand, right, Rapali, like why there might be certain segments of our population, particularly the black community, who said, you know what, I'm not comfortable with this. I get it. Um, having said that, what are you hearing when it comes to community leaders? We've talked to folks, uh, you know, certainly religious leaders who are trying to reach out to their communities to, to especially in minority communities, to help them step up. What are you seeing? Are we making any progress along those lines? I think it's a great question, and it's a lot of work that I have been focusing on with colleagues is that we have been going to African-American churches and talking to congregation members and really, you know, trying to be there as resource persons so that when people do have questions about the vaccines, we're able to to answer those. I have to give a huge sort of um, hats off, I would say, to uh, religious leaders, especially within the African-American community that I think are really going above and beyond. They want to make sure that their members have the right information that they need to make an informed decision. And a lot of them have reached out to, I know, not only myself, but other colleagues that have worked in vaccine science and have been asking individuals to come and sort of sit in on these listening sessions so that individuals that have been studying the vaccine science are there for them to ask questions. And so I think we are starting to see some of that progress. Right. However, I think to your point earlier, I think there is going to be, there's, as you know, medical trauma, historic medical trauma because mm-hmm. of experimentation. And so I think that, you know, it's going to be hard to eradicate it overall, but I think we're, we're doing better with regards to the disparities. The problem is still going to be access, which tends to be more of the issue, not necessarily intention, but access to the vaccine is also becoming a problem. Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask you, okay, so tell me about what are the questions people are asking, but if it's increasingly maybe not that people, and certainly within minority communities, are hesitant, but it's just about having the access, then what are we making? Are we making any progress in that? Because it does feel like, Tim and I talk about this, it feels like in our spheres that we are seeing either family members or people we know that are increasingly being able to get access to the vaccine, which it didn't feel that way maybe a month ago, six weeks ago. Absolutely. I think states are doing an amazing job of ramping up. We now have a third vaccine product, which will also help, I think, ease a lot of the issues that we were having with supply. The problem that we are seeing is that the outreach is not necessarily matching the segment of the population. And what I mean by that is when you're asking individuals to essentially pre-register for their priority group online, and you, as you can imagine, you have huge segments of the population that is just not comfortable mm-hmm. registering online. And that's really where there is a mismatch. And we've talked to several states about this, is that how do we make sure that we recruit and we really communicate our outreach in a way that is accessible for the segments that are eligible? And I think states are still sort of catching up to that, if you will. We're, we're not quite there yet. That's huge. I never even thought about that, right? Because you have to put in a ton of information oh, yeah. online. And if you, like, listen... 
a lot of people yeah. might not be comfortable with that. Not only if you're not comfortable, exactly. but if you don't have regular access to the internet, if, if you're point. not somebody who accesses the internet through a PC, or maybe your a smartphone is the primary way you're doing that, and it's not necessarily a mobile-friendly site. So, so, so what does that look like, Rapali? Does it does it look like it looks like door to door with with the census? I mean, is is, is that what we are going to have to do? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think there's a number of different ways that we can go about doing this. So earlier on in the pandemic, we were working with the city of Baltimore to let people know, for example, if they needed to get tested, right? Because this was sort of an issue kind of earlier on about a year ago. And one thing that I thought was really interesting and innovative was they put in the, the city put in leaflets in water bill, right? So you have your water bill. And then in that, there's a leaflet of information that there was a call-in number that you could call and different ways in which you can get really assistance if you needed help getting testing. I think doing something similar like mm -hmm. that, because the one thing that we have learned, especially going to these different congregations that tend to be filled with individuals that are 55 and older, by the way, they do say things like, well, I don't know how to get online or how would I look for an appointment at CBS.com? And so... Part of that is understanding, like, can we help with peer navigators, which has really been happening in, in a number of different countries with regards to any sort of a treatment option. Is that something we could do? But I think there is still a long way to go. And luckily, I mean, a lot of individuals that are older can at least have access to individuals that do feel comfortable getting online. Why don't right? we just do it like, why don't we just do like after a hurricane or, you know, something really terrible where there's uh, the Red Cross comes in, there's big tents, we're feeding people, we're handing out water. Yep. It's done overnight. It's just line up and get it done. Yep. It's a great idea. And they're starting to do that in some states. Like, for example, I know Hawaii was sort of first in this because they started sort of mass vaccination sites, if you will, that do not require appointments. I believe they had walk-ins at stadiums. Mm -hmm. And this was several months ago, right? So they were sort of ahead of it in that way because they understood. They were like, well, people aren't going to get online, right? This isn't a way that we're going to be able to get people to get an appointment. And so I think as more states are able to do that and, you know, move towards that model, then I think we'll be able to more quickly and rapidly, I think, ramp up how many people are actually getting a shot in the arm. Well, it's interesting because we are seeing still increased demand, uh, you know, more demand than supply in many places right now. Yesterday, we learned that the state of Alaska is reducing the age to anyone who works in the state or lives in the state over the age of 16 will soon be able to get the vaccine. At the same time, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida said the vaccine could be open to all adults in April. Are, are these the right moves right now when we do still have demand exceeding supply in, among certain dem demographics and age groups? Yeah, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, right? I think the goal here is to make sure that we're up allowing access to populations as quickly as possible so that we can get a proportion of the population vaccinated as soon as possible. But I think that can go hand in hand with still continuing to do outreach where we are seeing disparities, right? So whether that be, you know, a pop-up sort of vaccination clinic where they set it up in the neighborhood, they allow people to come in, they allow people to get vaccinated without, you know, having pre-registration, et cetera. Um, but I think it's, it's something that you could do simultaneously, side by side. And I think that's the only way we're really going to be able to reach people that really need to get the vaccine that are more at higher risk of exposure. All right. So, Rapali, the question that Tim and I love to ask people, it's okay, here we are a year in. Um, I don't know. What's the timeline, do you think, for this year where we start to feel, quote, unquote, normal? <laughs> It's so funny. We were just looking at models this morning, um, you know, with our infectious disease dynamic mm -hmm. <laughs> modeling unit. And one, of the, and one of the questions that I had, of course, is, you know, what are we looking at? And I think if we can continue, if folks can continue to do the non-pharmaceutical interventions, and what I mean by that is social distancing, still, you know, wearing a face mask for the most part, still meeting outside. I think if we can stay at the levels that we have been engaging in those types of activities, 
we should start to see a pretty, the summer is starting to look actually really quite nice with regards to how supply is changing with Johnson & Johnson coming in um, and Merck helping with that product development process, as I think you all know. Mm-hmm. I think the key here is going to be we then see things like what happens in Texas where all of a sudden they're repealing a mask mandate. And our concern there, as you can imagine, is that are we at the right threshold of a population with regards to a population acquiring immunity to be able to go there yet? And that's right. the concern, is that are we going to have setbacks because of that, right? So is right. that going to be pushing it? So I think that's going to be the key here is as, as governors decide to reopen states, are they doing it safely? Are they doing right. it early? Really, that's going to impact how okay. we're going to look. Going to need that state-to-state passport. We can just see it. <laughs> I a see little it bit now. of a <laughs> pandemic passport. Rupali uh, LeMay, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Associate scientist over at Johns Hopkins, the Bloomberg School of Public Health. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. You know, Carol, you and I have been talking a lot about it being a year since yep. the World Health Organization called this a pandemic. Let's think about what has happened during that year. 29 million infected here in the United States, 529,000 dead, and about 10 million who are unemployed. That's big disru- big disruption, if you think about it. A big, Huge. big disruption. I mean, it's it's absolutely shocking when we, when we really think about those numbers. Emma Court is somebody who has been thinking a lot about those numbers. She's a healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News and joins us on the phone right now from New York City. Emma, your your latest feature feature follows ten Americans over the last year. It's a diverse group. It includes a comedian like Mike Birbiglia. It includes a psychiatrist. It includes a physician. It includes a business leader, a funeral home director. How their lives have changed over the last year. What is a common thread that runs through their stories? Yeah, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I think we're all trying to find ways to process what's happened over the last year and and understand these tremendous changes that have occurred in our lives and in, in the world at large. I think this the common thread between a lot of these stories, and I think many of us probably recognize this in our own lives, is these sort of themes of loss and grief and trauma and, and sorrow, but also, you know, change and, and adjustments and, and coping. And so, um, you know, we spoke with, you know, a funeral director in California, for instance, who, you know, just a couple months ago lost not just her father, with whom, you know, she and her mom and her son lived, um, but also two uncles. And she's also grappling with a new reality at work where funeral homes, you know, I think especially in California have been just absolutely overwhelmed and have had to start waiting lists for, for people coming in and even turn some families away. And um, that's just been, as you can imagine, incredibly difficult. She said it's almost unheard of in that industry. Um, and then you have things like, you know, Mike Berbiglia, who, you know, in- initially when the pandemic started, thought, you know, he would never tried doing stand-up comedy remotely and then um you know what he ended up finding as the pandemic dragged on over the summer he said you know what i I will i will try this out and he found you know it's a different experience he said it's harder for sure than the comedy seller right but it's something where he can actually see people now in their living room sitting on their couch and he can actually see their faces as opposed to a dark you know club where you can only see kind of the front row because of all the bright lights so i think um, you know, we're all changed because of this, and I think our economy has changed, our, the way we work and live has changed, but there are, are ways that I think we are finding, you know, maybe not a silver lining, but, you know, new ways of living a bit, all that. 
I love what Mike had to say about reading the room. It's a little <laughs> bit more difficult when you're doing it virtually. It's like really tough. You know, speaking about um, reading the room, I look around the rooms here now that I'm back at work, but I think about too my room at home when I was working. There was a lot of yoga pants. There was a lot of casual <laughs> wear. I've worn a lot of jeans back at the office, which I haven't done in years. Um, fashion industry, that's another one, retail. like It's just been really an upheaval there as well. And you talk to Valerie Steele over at the museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Yeah, we did. And, and it was funny, she referenced this like uh, a quote about how sweatpants basically mean a person has given up. Well, I mean, I think a lot of us then have given up over the last year um, because that is, that is, uh, I'm wearing leggings right now. As we speak. Um, Just given up from the not, waist down. <laughs> I would not wear that into the office. But I think, you know, it's interesting. She was saying this was a trend that was in the works already, right? You think of that sort of San Francisco mm-hmm. aesthetic, the Allbirds, the like, you know, the, the hoodies to work. And so this was a trend that was really kind of more accelerated by the pandemic that it didn't just sort of come out of nowhere. And she said, you know, if we go back to the office, even if it's kind of part time, people will be doing more dry cleaning and, you know, maybe they'll be wearing their suits a couple of days a week. But it seems like it's kind of here to stay at this point. And we only have 10 seconds left. Do we continue to bake? You talked to Karen Kohlberg, co-CEO of King Arthur Baking Company. We all know those flour shortages. Right, right. So they, uh, you know, the, the baking trend is they think it's here to stay. You know, you're hopefully not going to be making sourdough every day the way maybe you were right. in the beginning of the pandemic. But, you maybe know, cookies. now that you know how to make sourdough, you know, <laughs> here we go, sourdough for lunch. So. God, listen, I was on a hunt for flour many months oh, ago. Yeah. It was really tough. Um, it's a great right through of just oh so many individuals being impacted all of us by the pandemic uh, really appreciate it emma thank you so much bloomberg news healthcare reporter emma court this is bloomberg business week with carol masser and bloomberg quick takes tim stenovic from bloomberg radio tim we are living in a world where it feels like just about anybody can get famous on tiktok youtube and instagram it's something we talked to nick bilton about just a, just a few weeks ago right Right. Being famous. Yeah. He did that uh, HBO documentary, which is really, really cool. And listen, as our Bloomberg News technology reporter, Sarah Fryer, found out it's a lot easier. You can do that, but it's a lot easier to make a living doing it if you are white. So joining us with more on the story is Max Chafkin, features editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. He's with us on the phone in Queens, New York, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Jill Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. This is a deep dive that just once again, Jill, you know, shows us the inequities about, you know, doing something in this world, but you're treated differently, paid differently if you're black or if you're white. That's right. And, and just a reminder that this is all part of the uh, equality issue mm-hmm. of Bloomberg Business Week, which has been rolling out uh, all week. And, you know, we've got to talk about taxes a little bit. And then uh, instead of taking money, let's talk about making money. But some people get to make more than others. Um, Max, uh, great to talk with you about this feature that you edited. And, and tell us what Sarah uh, found as she dug into the reporting. You know, the, the, the feature is about what you, what you probably should think of as sort of the new Hollywood. So this is the, the world of, of influencers, YouTubers, TikTokers, um, and memers, uh, and, and, and so on. Basically, anyone who's kind of making content um, for mobile phones and, and for, you know, young people. And, you know, obviously, uh, we're, we're living through this moment that, you know, starting last summer where, um, you know, everyone around the world, and especially, um, or, or, or marketers included, um, basically became much more aware of, um, you know, of racial issues, Black Lives Matter movement. We started seeing, you know, all of these kind of Instagram takeovers, you know, 
you know, being pushed by, you know, both, both activists, but also lots and lots of big companies. And what Sarah found out is, you know, often the, the, the people who are actually making this content are being paid less. So, so they're, they're making content that is in some ways, you know, whatever, narrowing, uh, you know, narrowing a cultural gap, but there's, there's still a, um, a pay gap. So, you know, when it comes to social media, and this is something that Sarah addresses in her piece, one of the promises all the way back to when the, the Internet was really founded, right? It would democratize things. It was a meritocracy. People would be treated equally. These social platforms, it, it, it's, it's not a meritocracy, is it, Max? Yeah, totally. And, and that's one of, the, one of the really interesting things in this story. Sarah has some reporting from uh, a former Facebook uh, employee who was working on the rollout of one of these new, you know, social media features for Facebook, and he, uh, you know, encouraged his bosses to try to sign up some black and Hispanic influencers on, on the platform because they are some of the biggest, you know, users of Instagram, some of the, um, you know, some of the most popular people on the site, and, and so it made a lot of sense, um, even from a business perspective. And as this person, as a source described, you know, he was basically shot down. Um, because Facebook said, well, look, we don't have relationships with these people. We don't have relationships with, the, with, with non-white influencers, which is, you know, on one hand, that's kind of an explanation, but it's also, of course, an indictment because, you know, that's, that's a huge oversight, especially for a company that is supposed to be focused on data. So, so and, and the, what the piece argues, um, you know, really persuasively is, uh, you know, in the old days, you know, of the entertainment industry, where we're really used to hearing about, you know, basically white male studio executives executives, um, you know, hiring, uh, sort of, you know, propagating their own biases. And we see the same kind of thing happening with social media companies, where you have a lot of uh, basically white executives, um, white marketers, and of course, you know, who are they going to hire? They're going to hire people um, like them. Hey, Max, so how much money are we are we talking about here in general? Like how, how big of a of an industry have influencers become? And, and what's the pay disparity actually look like for, for them? Yeah, so the the biggest uh, you know the biggest social media influencers um, uh, you know are are pulling in millions of dollars a year you know as much as a hundred thousand dollars a post. Um, the kind of like middle of the road influencers are making anywhere from you know a few hundred bucks to to, to several thousand dollars to say make a TikTok video for a brand. Um, the 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 lead example of this story uh, you had kind of an up and coming influencer um, who Sydney McRae who, who who created this dance. Uh, for a, uh, a record label, uh, was paid $500 to do it, and then she saw a white influencer come in later and was paid by an affiliate of that label uh, basically, you know, probably something like 10 times more. And, that, you know, that white influencer had a lot more followers. Um, uh, so, so, you know, you could argue there should be some difference, but there is something a little bit staggering about somebody who, who creates, um, creates this art, and, and then it's you know, performed by a white person for a, a, a much, much larger figure. Well, the other thing, you know, and we talk about this a lot when it comes to women, when, you know, when it comes to minorities just in the business workplace of having kind of mentors and people and the infrastructure in place to bring along often, you know, people like yourselves. There is, um, Sarah writes in her story, Max, about the crib, which is a group of well-known influencers, uh, minorities who are banding together to kind of learn from one another. Yeah, this this uh, editing the story caused me to have to you know get up to date on the on hype houses. Or, or <laughs> oh come houses. on! Are we going to see one in Queens soon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, if Andrew Yang is elected mayor, I think. Um, uh, the, uh, the the 
so the, the deal is basically these are, are sort of collectives of influencers. Brands will, um, you know, sometimes sponsor the entire house. And like these, you know, it's like a group of attractive young people. They produce uh, content mentioning the brand. And, um, and Sarah spoke with a new one, which is, um, you know, focused on, you know, uh, black influencers. Basically. Mm-hmm. It's called the crib around the corner, as you said. And what's interesting is, you know, that this, this group, um, they, they signed up a big corporate sponsor, AT&T. Um, they, it's just launching now. I mean, you know, the, the, this, this is something that, that, that's happening at the moment. Right. Um, and, and they're really excited about it because from the point of the view of the influencers, like it allows them to kind of compare notes on yeah. pay because that's, that's one of the big issues here. We have um, people, these, these, these kind of up-and-coming stars. It's just like in Hollywood, right? right. No one knows exactly what, what they're worth. Yeah, and that, that creates opportunities to be taken advantage of. Yeah, and they're, right, exactly. Um, good stuff. There's so much detail in this story. Max, thank you so much. And our thanks to Jill Weber as well. That story by Sarah Fryer. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So another of our most read stories on the Bloomberg, it was also highlighted in Bloomberg's Five Things to Start Your Day newsletter. That was this morning. It's the subject of a Bloomberg podcast. We're talking about an ancestral search done by our own Bloomberg News Senior Executive Editor of the Americas, Jacqueline Simmons. What she found out during this process, uh, it's, I've listened to some of the podcast. It's really riveting. Jackie joins us on the phone in New York City. Jackie, so good to have you here with Tim and myself. So tell us about what you initially saw set out to do and kind of why you did it and, and where it led you? Sure. Um, thanks for having me. So uh, this really was born out of a conversation I had with uh, my co-host, Rebecca Greenfield, about how to approach the next season. You know, just a short reminder, the first two were about the gender pay gap. And at the time we were having a discussion, you know, there was George Floyd. Um, and we also saw coming out of the pandemic, a lot of economic data, mm-hmm. um, whether it was unemployment figures or small businesses closing. And, you know, you could see how the disparity uh, skewed to certain demographics and especially the black demographic. And so the thinking behind the series is really a chance to query that gap, um, knowing that, um, you know, there were protests in the streets um, after George Floyd's killing and knowing that this is fair widening on the back of this major global pandemic. And so that's basically kind of what got us thinking about the story. And that got me thinking about my story and how does my family narrative fit into that? Well, I don't want to give too much away mm-hmm. in the podcast, but what can you tell us about what you found about your own family without, without giving too much away? <laughs> sure. I mean, in a nutshell, um, really, it's a can of worms. Um, I think anybody thinking about, you know, their family's history is going to find, you know, that can. But in this case, uh, you know, tracing your roots back to slavery um, in this country is no small task. Um, There are no clear ledgers. uh, There's no clear record-keeping. Census records go back only so far. Um, And a lot of people who really do know the history, you know, have you know, sadly passed away or or forgotten or moved on. I did manage to piece enough of the tale together to understand uh, what we lost, um, you know, after coming into land in East Texas, however. So, you know, can of worms, but uh, pretty interesting, you know, when you peel back the layers to find out what we gained and then subsequently lost. Well, and you go back to your great, great aunt and uncle. What's interesting, too, and like Tim, 
uh, I've, you know, we don't want to give away too much because you really, you guys over the season of the podcast, um, kind of work it through, but it gets to that bigger story and something we've been talking about here on Bloomberg Business Week all week about um, blacks and wealth and wealth creation and how you get it. And I think the disparities between blacks and whites, you really dig into that. I mean, wealth happens over generations and whites have had an opportunity to do that. Blacks have not, at least not as much. Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, systemic racism is all about structures in our society, in our economy, in our communities that are uneven. And, you know, when I think about the land narrative of our family in Texas, it fits with that because it tells a broader narrative of how you pass on wealth. Mm-hmm. You know, just keeping in mind that a lot of the wealth in this country comes from property. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's some 40 percent, in fact. And so when there's disparities in one's ability to access loans, um, disparities in the way you actually buy property in neighborhoods desirable or less desirable, or when you're in a tax code that is puts you at a disadvantage, all that taken together, you know, makes it systemic. And so, you know, our land is part of that narrative pulled from, you know, a different optic. I wonder about these trends shifting. I wonder about, look, this is a story that has played out in your family over generations. How, how how does this get fixed within our lifetimes? How do we fix these systemic issues? It's it's a question that we've been grappling with. Well, you know, in this current issue of Bloomberg Business Week, of course, but this year for in, in last year, talking about it a lot. And I would layer on it. Why hasn't it been fixed already? Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, that's the kind of you know ten thousand dollar question. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. I think, you know, awareness is a first step. And I think that what we saw in 2020 after May um, was just, you know, kind of woke up a lot of people. Um, however you saw the, whatever your point of view was, it's sort of the awareness uh, was kind of put front and center about the, the disparity issue in this country and quite honestly, the disparity issue around the globe. So how does it get fixed? I think you're going to have to have a lot of painful conversations. I think you're going to have to have legislation. I think you're going to have to have take that conversation and awareness to a uh, planning level um, with real specifics. Um, and, you know, the banks are going to have to, you know, change the way that they, you know, operate to some degree in, in terms of inclusivity, in terms of, you know, the issue that we've had with redlining. Um, you know, everything right to the tax code. Um, It's a real structural, you know, deeply embedded uh, situation that's going to take, I'm not sure we're going to fix it. 100% 100% in our lifetime, I, I'm afraid. Which is incredibly discouraging. Listen, this is something we've talked about a lot. It's in the equality issue, too, of uh, Business Week magazine about the tax code uh, and the racism and biasness that we're seeing in it. More on Jackie's story in the Paycheck podcast, a Bloomberg News series. It examines the intersection of money and inequality with Jackie and Rebecca Greenfield, head of diversity coverage at Bloomberg News. Find it at Bloomberg.com or wherever you download your podcast. I was listening, had to stop just before the show, but it is uh, fascinating and interesting and engaging. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. 
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Great to have back with us Randy Watts, Chief Investment Strategist at O'Neill Global Advisors, with us once again on the phone in Miami. Uh, Randy, nice to have you back with us. Feel like there has been a lot going on in the financial markets, and I think everybody's trying to figure out, are we going to see more of a pullback? Is tech overdone? Is there more fluff to come out? Or is it just taking a little bit of the excess out and we're going to move back to the upside? How do you see it, especially on a day where we see the S&P at another record? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. Sure. And I hope everybody's safe and well in New York. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you too. I, 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 think, um, I think a couple of things. I don't, I'm not sure the volatility in the short run is done with. I know the market's very, very strong today. It would not surprise me to see a little bit more volatility, a little bit more of a pullback here. But I do think over the rest of the year, we are going to move higher. And the key driver on that is really the stimulus bill. If you look at the amount of money we've put towards this crisis and you compare it to the great the Great Recession, the Great Financial Crisis, it's about double. We spent about $2.8 trillion back in that 2008-2010 uh, period. With, with the new law that Biden just signed uh, today, you know, that's up to $5.8 trillion. And that money is going to help stimulate the economy. And I think inevitably some of that money is going to find its way into financial assets. So I think the direction of stocks over the rest of the year is actually up. So you don't think that that's already priced in right now? It was widely expected that, that, that this bill would pass without Republican support, and indeed it did. I think it's one thing to be expected, but I think it's another thing when the money actually starts to flow into the system. And I just think it's such a big number that it, it can't be ignored. Now, I do worry about the effect it's going to have on inflation and on the bond market longer term. But in the kind of short to intermediate term, I, I think that money is going to work its way through the system, and that's going to drive stocks higher. Where does that money flow specifically? Well, it's going to, it's going to flow in a lot of places. One of the things is that this bill, uh, fortunately, really helps the bottom third of the country. And I think, as you know, economically, uh, those people tend to be, to be spenders more than, than savers. So that money is going to get spent, and it's going to drive up uh, the demand for goods and services that's going to help boost the economy. It's also probably, unfortunately, going to help boost prices a little bit. Right. But don't you see that, you know, potentially, Randy, that increase in prices, maybe it's just a temporary thing, just some of the disconnect between supply chains reopening, people getting back to work and kind of everything ramping up to meet that increased demand, especially as the economy gets back on track? Absolutely. I think the direction, I think there's been a, you know, a quote, uh, a regime change in, in bond yields. And I think the, the, the path on bond yields is higher also. And I think that is going to suppress the multiple on the market. Uh, so really, gains in the market have to be driven by earnings. That being said, I think 2021 is going to be a very good year for corporate profits and corporate earnings. Right now, earnings estimates are looking for about a 24% uh, increase for the S&P to about, a, about 172, which means the market right now is trading about 23 times. That's, an, that's awfully fast earnings growth. And I think stock, I, think, I don't think that's all priced in yet. I think stocks are going to react to that positively. Hey, one thing I want to ask you, because Dave Wilson, our stocks editor, just did a chart, an interesting uh, chart of the day, and it looked specifically on how short positions are way down. And Tim and I were talking, you know, shorting the market is a part of the market, just like going long. And you're someone who have managed both long only and long short hedge funds. I mean, do you see kind of the GameStop effect and maybe people a little bit nervous to take on those short positions? Is that going to be problematic for the financial markets and trading? 
I think it's I think it's scary to step in front of all this money that's coming out from the government, right? The Fed remains loose. If you look at real rates right now, they're basically negative. The Fed continues its bond buying program, and you have $1.9 trillion coming out from the federal government. So I don't think you want to be a hero and step in front of that, that, that fire hose. But eventually that is going to wind itself down. And when it does, I think there will be much better opportunities to short the market. Uh, the market's going to have a big move here driven by liquidity. I do worry about what the other side of that liquidity looks like. So you did say that the, the the markets will be higher by the end of the year, but it's not going to be a, a straight line up. There there could be some sort of pullback, some sort of correction. What does that look like? How big? I think that's I think that's driven by a couple of things. I think it's driven by increasing yields and pressure on valuations. And you know, a typical move in the market, though you just had one on Nasdaq, is there usually is ten percent volatility peak to trough in a given year. Now you just had about an eleven percent pullback on on Nasdaq. Uh, you haven't had that same level pullback on the S&P. Uh, a little more volatility as rates move up would not surprise me. But I think at the end of the day, a stronger economy and stronger earnings are going to overcome that for, for, for this year, for this year. So i got to ask you about Bitcoin. Uh, I know sure. you recently wrote a column. Uh, and I'm just curious, I think, about you know, if you look at Bitcoin, I'm just looking at it, it's already up almost 100% this year. It's on a tear. How do we need to be smart about it as investors? How do you see it? I think what's funny about Bitcoin is it was really designed uh, to t- kind of go around the existing financial system. But now the existing financial system has actually co-opted it, right? Mm-hmm. So Bank of New York is going to start offering digital currency services for custody People like MasterCard and PayPal and Square are incorporate, incorporating it into their payment networks. So Wall Street has kind of voted, and they voted that that Bitcoin is is here to stay and, and going to be the, be the cryptocurrency of choice. I do think people like it right now because they see it as a store of value. There's a finite amount of Bitcoin that's ever going to be created. Right now, there's about 18.6 million created right now. The finite amount is going to be about 21 million. And I think people are nervous about, as we talked about earlier, because of liquidity and all this money that's being being put out by the government, people are looking for stores of value. And I think people are, are using Bitcoin as a store of value, kind of like they did with gold in the past. It's not a great transaction mechanism because it's actually pretty slow. So I'm not sure if it's going to become like the everyday thing you use to buy your groceries, et cetera. But I think there is value in its scarcity, and I think it's here to stay. That value, though, do you think it stays? That store value just got about 20 seconds. Does it stay up near these levels, or do you think it's actually headed a lot higher because of that, you know, we're not going to just see an endless amount of it just quickly? I think over the next several years, it's definitely going to move higher. I think it's up 11 times in the last 12 months. So it would not surprise me Mm -hmm. to see a substantial pullback. But where do I think it is three years from now? I think it's higher than 57,000 when it's at right now. Okay, that's fair. Hey, Randy, be well. Um, Thank you and stay safe. Randy Watts, uh, Chief Investment Strategist at O'Neill Global Advisors with us from Miami. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.